It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks, and this is our show for November 6th, 2021. Well, it was supposed to be the November 6th show, and yes, it's actually November 9th, and I apologize for the delay. That said, it is a good show today. Ultra man cycling might not say it all when it comes to Omar De Felice. Omar loves extremes, extreme cold, extreme distances, extreme heights, and he's a full-time endurance cyclist. Omar is from Lazio, Italy, right outside of Rome, and with more than 70,000 social media followers, is one of the most interesting people I've spoken with in a long time. His story is fascinating. He'll be with me in a moment. Then we're going to hear from Andrew Bernie Bernstein in a follow-up conversation to the one we had back in 2020. You may remember Bernie's story. He was hit and left for dead by the side of the road in 2019. His recovery has been long, arduous, and painful, and he will always have terrible residual issues, including a leg that is paralyzed from the knee down. Two weeks ago, Bernie's assailant was in court for sentencing and Bernie delivered a victim statement at the proceeding. I thought it was a good time to catch up with him and hear what he has to say. On October 22nd, Rollier Online published an interview with Omar DeFelice, and I found what he had to say fascinating. Back in March, Omar had cycled to Mount Everest Base Camp, a mere 5,364 meters, or 17,598 feet. In winter, after crossing the entire Himalayan region without any support. Who is this man, I wanted to know. And so today, you too will learn how Omar does it, why he does it, and what he wants people to know about his job, as he calls it. Hello, Omar. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest on the show this week. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks for your welcome and thanks for the invitation. It is my pleasure. Well, when you read about Mr. Ultra Cycling Man, it's important to let my listeners know about you. Uh, You're an extreme cyclist and an addicted mountain lover, you say. So I want to break it all down. Let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Italy. Yes, I was born in near Rome, in the uh, in the in the area of Rome, and I was I started cycling in 1994, so it's a long way from the beginning, and yeah, Italy for me was uh, was my it's my country and it's the place where I started cycling. Well, Italy's you know sort of the seat of cycling when you think of Campagnolo and you think of Colnago and you think of all these fabulous Italian brands that everybody loves and still rides so of course your english is really good did where did you uh learn to speak such perfect english and your writing is excellent it ne- you would never know that you're not american oh thank you very much but i don't think it's so so perfect but i i i, I think that education is so important 
And this is why I was graduated in habitat design. What kind of design? Habitat design. Oh. It's a mix of industrial design and then interior design. And where did you go to school? I was going to the Designer Institute in Rome. So it's a private institute. And I had this graduation there in in 23. But now you spend a lot of your time on a bicycle. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's an understatement. I'm sorry. (laughs) You spend all your time on a bicycle. So let's, let's talk about the path that took you to the kind of cycling you're doing. You call yourself an ultra distance cyclist, which you are. You do these amazing things. If you go on your website, which we'll give our listeners to go see, you have these wonderful videos and you're riding in some of the most amazing places and so far, and it's cold and it's snowy. I don't know how you do it, but tell me about what got you started into ultra distance cycling. Oh, I started in the ultra distance after I stopped to, to do cycling as professional. I was professional for two years. And then when I stopped with the professional cycling, I started working as normal designer. And I did cycling just for passion, just for fun. And during that period, uh, approximately four, 12 years ago, I started doing cycling uh, just to just to enjoy, and so I started doing something more extreme. So long distances, I bring my bike everywhere in the world. I use my bike to travel. I use my bike to do ultra distances, and this is when exactly started my passion for ultra cycling and ultra distances. And then after this first period, I started thinking about uh, okay, Omar, I can try to do this as a professional, so a professional ultracyclist. And everything started with a long journey to Santiago de Compostela, uh, alone with my bike in five days from Tolosa in France to Santiago de Compostela, cycling every day 300 to 400 kilometers, completely alone. And when I came back home, I, I, I just started thinking about a professional career in ultracycling. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, sometimes dreams come true. Yeah. Really, really. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Omar De Felice. He is the Ultraman cyclist. Just amazing stuff. Where do you see the videos on his uh, on his website? How do you plan? one of your trips. So I know that you plan some of them long in advance, but like today, you know, we changed the time of our conversation. So you could ride, I don't know how many miles you rode today, but you rode from A to B, right? Yeah, I I rode from Glasgow going up uh, halfway to Inverness in in the Highlands in Scotland. And usually when I organize my adventures and my long distances ride, Everything starts with uh, uh, with a dream. Maybe when I was when when I when I cycle, I think a lot and I think about new places, about deserts, about mountains, about places where I can bring my bike and where I can organize something. So I come back home. I just buy a paper map. I start thinking about ideas, about the route, about everything, and then I organize well 
all the all the stuff that I need. I put a specific route on my on my Komoot account. That is a software that you can use to to plan your route. And then I just move. I just bring my bike and I start cycling, uh, defining a point A and the final point to reach with my bike. So, for example, last year I did the, the cross of Himalaya in winter, uh, ending my adventure to the Everest Base Camp. So I, I organized the adventure starting from Kathmandu, the capital city, and then I moved to the Mustang area. That is a really scenic area in between Nepal and China. And then I just climbed till the, the base camp of the Everest. On your bike? Yeah, with my mountain bike. <laughs> so um, I didn't think of this before, but how has the pandemic changed what you've been doing or has it? I mean, I know you're a solo rider for the most part, so it's not like you interact with a lot of people, but you have to interact at some point, right? Yeah, my my rides are ninety nine percent of time solo, completely solo. And but you know when you explore countries and you explore places, it's not only about performance, it's not only about adventure, it's not only about sport, but it's also about the humanity. Uh, for example, when I was in Nepal or when I was in Mongolia, I found a lot of local people, and they. They helped me because, for example, the nomadic people in the Mongolia Gobi Desert helped me, giving me uh, foods and then giving me places where I can stay during the night and giving me drink and everything I need. So I was in a desert completely alone, but never alone, uh, really, because you can find nomadic people and they really help you. And, and it's the best part of my job, uh, the, the people that you meet uh, on the road. It's so interesting to hear you say that because everybody I speak with who has done some sort of long distance tour says the same thing, that people are just wonderful everywhere they go. And so why would it be any different in Nepal than it is in like, I don't know, Colorado? (laughs) It's really pretty amazing. What would you say is the most challenging ride you've done so far? Oh, I I don't know if I can do a ranking about the most challenging rides of my life because every ride has its own challenge. Uh, For example, when I I go to the Everest Base Camp, I had to face the high altitude problems because you have to ride from 3,000 meters above the sea level to 4 to 5,000 meters. And it's really challenging because you have to face breath problems and then you, are, you, you don't have too much energies when you climb up. And then, for example, in Alaska, I faced the extreme cold conditions. So not too much mountains, no high altitudes, but extreme colds till the, as the, the, the temperature uh, was going down till to uh, minus 30, minus 40 degrees Celsius degrees that is really challenging. Or when I used to do ultra cycling uh, competition, ultra cycling races, uh, the most challenging part uh, is for sure the sleep deprivation. So every challenge has its own challenge and its own uh, difficulties. It sounds too hard to me. Let's take a short <laughs> break. And when we come back, we'll speak with Omar some more. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist.
bicycle crash is not an accident. And when you find yourself in a situation that calls for experienced, effective, and positive legal support and advocacy, you can depend on any of North America's independent Bike Law members. Bike Law's cycling attorneys are members of our community committed to the pursuit of cycling safety and justice. For more information about Bike Law, log on to bikelaw.com. They're on your left, protecting your rights. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist, and if you're just joining me, we are having a delightful conversation with Omar DeFelice. He is the ultra-cycling man, and his adventures are just amazing. For people who love adventure, boy, I'll tell you, you're doing some things that I don't think anybody I've ever spoken with has um, even contemplated, let alone tackled before. So one of the things that really attracted me to our conversation was your desire for Arctic adventures. Like, oh my goodness, I don't like the cold. It's only in the 40s in Fahrenheit here today, and I, it's like feels bitter. You will ride in all kinds of weather. How do you maintain your body temperature and your breathing and all of that when you're so cold and even keeping your water liquid? Oh, when you ride your bike uh, over the Arctic Circle with temperatures down to minus 30, minus 40, minus 45 degrees, it's everything changes because you have to manage a lot of things that you, you, don't, you don't have to manage in normal conditions. Because, for example, you can't have the, everything to, to drink in your bottle because everything was frozen. And then you have, for sure problems with your Googles because it's not possible to maintain their clear. But first of all, you have to, the best thing is to um, isolate your body from the exterior. So the, the most important thing is to use uh, a good base layer apparel. And my favorite is for sure the Merino wool one because Merino wool is a really natural textile is the same that they use in the in the desert with extreme cold and extreme uh, hot conditions because can keep your skin really isolated from the outside so then you can uh, you can cover using the same jacket that you use in normal condition but maybe you you will have to use two or three jackets and then you have to use the best gloves that you can that you can find and it's for sure, it's really challenging, but the most challenging part is the mental. Uh, because, you know, cold is something that you have to love. If you don't love cold conditions, maybe you won't be able to uh, to ride in, over the circle or uh, in Canada or in Iceland or in Norway. Uh, when I was up there, for sure, the best part is the, the, the landscapes and is the northern lights and is the ice. Everything that I can see it's really amazing and it's the, the, it, this is why I really love to ride my bike in winter. So I have a question about how you get the videos you get. Are you taking your videos or do you have, yeah, it's not a cameraman. No, I don't have, uh, you know, ultra cycling is both uh, unsupported and supported. So sometimes I had uh, a support car. And when I have a support car, for sure, there is a cameraman. And, uh, you know, when you have support car, the, 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 the challenge is more performance-oriented. But during last years, 
I started thinking about ultracycling completely unsupported. This is why I go to Nepal, I go to Mongolia, I go to Iceland, completely alone. And when you are completely alone, you have to manage everything, including the, the, the camera, including the movie that you have to uh, take. And yeah, this is, this is really challenging, but it's a part of my job because I really love to, to tell the story about my adventures. And, uh, you know, when you are riding in so-called conditions, uh, you have to think also about uh, putting your your action cam and taking a movie, and then you have to have pictures, and then you have to fly with your small drone. I have also a small drone because I want to 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 bring home some scenic videos. And yeah, it's part of the job because it's not only cycling, but it's also telling the story about adventures. This is my job. Who pays you? For this to be your job, how do you earn money by doing this? Uh, when I started doing ultracycling, there are not too much uh, people that do this kind of job. So, especially in Italy, I was the first man able to, to, to do this as a job. And I found some good sponsorship, uh, some good brands like Villiers, Cessina, like Shimano, like Mavic, that helped me to to pay for my expeditions and then I improve the job because I don't do just sport events, but I, I manage the communication and then I manage everything. I write some books and then I, I have movies and then I realize the stories about this and then I speak with people and then I do, I spread the word about the values of my, of my sponsor. Uh, so now it's uh, like uh, uh, a small industry for me, and it's my it's my own business. But it's really it's really amazing because I don't have to manage just the sport part, but also the job. You have to consider that I spent uh, maybe half of my day doing work on uh, behind the laptop on my MacBook. So I have to, to write projects, I have to write books, I have to reply to emails, I have to organize everything. And I have to speak with my, with my sponsors and manage also the communication because now social media are very important for the, for the brands. So let's talk about language for a moment. Clearly you speak English and you speak Italian. Do you speak any other languages? Yes, I speak a lot of French and it helps me in Europe because French is one of the main language of cycling, of the official cycling. Nice. How do you manage in places like Mongolia or China or uh, places where I guess English is kind of spoken everywhere a little bit, yes? Yeah, English is, uh, is spoken everywhere. But uh, when you are in the middle of the, the, the Gobi Desert, <laughs> you don't have too much language to speak if you don't know the, uh, the local language. But maybe it's not difficult to understand because when a nomad see you in the middle of the desert, they, they, they just know that you need to drink, to sleep and to eat. So you don't have to ask everything else. When you travel, you carry everything on your bike with you. You do not carry a trailer. Um, you have a very limited amount of space. What do you take with you? Oh, usually I use a bike packing system. So I have all of the bags on my directly on my bikes. And then when I do more spaces, I use also a backpack. 
And, you know, the most important thing is to have the, the right uh, stuff, so the right jersey, the right apparel, because especially when you face the winter, you have to be really, to stay really warm. So you do, you do have everything you need. And then for sure, I have some equipment to repair my bike in case of punctures, in case of uh, small break and something that can happen. And, but I think that the easiest part of the baggage is about technologies. So a lot of batteries, a lot of cables because I have to charge everything, the GPS, the lights, and then the drone, then the camera. So, you know, we are now in 2021, we, we, we have really light bikes, but we have too much technologies with us. So maybe it's, a, it's about balancing the, 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 the weight of the bike and the weight of the baggages. So what kind of components are on your bike? So you have the Villiers road bike and you have a mountain bike and... Are you using, you're not using electronic, you're using mechanical shifting and disc brakes? Uh, consider that, yes, in winter, I use mechanic um, gear and the mechanic group set because you, you, you are not able to manage electronic uh, when the, the, the temperature going down to minus 30 degrees because the battery dies and it's terrible. So you have to use just a mechanic. It and, is terrible. <laughs> yeah, and it is terrible because if the bike stops moving, it's a big problem. But during, but all year round, when I don't have to, to manage the winter, I use electronic group set because it's really, it's more handy and it's more quick and it's more easy to manage because you can fix everything with your app on your, uh, on your mobile phone. So it's good electronic also. Interesting. Yeah, I forgot about the app. Sure, that works. Why not? So yeah. you have like 70,000 followers and it's really easy to follow you because you post all these beautiful videos on your website. What's your next big adventure? What are you planning right now? Oh, I can't reveal anything now. Because okay. I'm just, I, I'm just planning, but you know, uh, winter is coming and you know that I love winter for sure. And yeah, for sure. I will do something really extreme in the winter. All right. So the last thing, of course, the most important is how can my listeners follow you? Where can they find you and watch what you're doing and get your books and all the other things that you do? Yeah, you can find me uh, on all social media. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and also LinkedIn. And then I put every day my rides on Komoot, on my Komoot account. Uh, right now, my books are just in Italian, but I was talking about some companies to translate in English and to spread the books all over the world because my main focus is to spread the word about how beautiful it is to ride a bike in, all over the world. So this is my main goal. And this is why I have a big community and I have a big uh, supporters on all my, my social media. And I, I hope to improve because I think that bicycle is the best vehicle that we have. And is the first vehicle that we use when we was all child. So why, why don't spread how beautiful it is? 
It is beautiful. Well, Omar, yeah. this has just been a wonderful conversation. I knew that I would enjoy speaking with you. The website is ultramancycling.com. We've been speaking with Omar DeFelice, and I can't wait to learn what your next adventure is. Thank you so much for talking with me today and stay safe. Thank you very much and see you next time. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. My thanks to Omar DeFelice for speaking with me today. He is currently in Scotland at the COP26 climate conference. And yes, he cycled there from London. You can find out more about Omar at his website, ultramancycling.com. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll speak with Andrew Bernie Bernstein. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. WJCU, University Heights, from the campus of John Carroll University. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. On July 20th, 2019, the nightmare that so many of us never hopes happens did happen to Bernie Bernstein. On his way home from the local velodrome, the elite cyclist was hit and left for dead. We spoke with Bernie back in 2020 when he was still in physical therapy multiple times per week and slowly regaining some strength and mobility. Now he's dealing with a lot of issues related to the crash, but he is doing some hiking and biking again. Here's our conversation. Hi, Bernie. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me this week. How are you? I'm well, Hal. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to have you back, and I'm glad to see you. I mean, nobody else will see this, but I get to see you. <laughs> yep. And it's... Uh, been quite a week for you. Well, actually, now it's going on the second week since this sentencing. So I want to talk about that. When we spoke in September of 2020, you were working really, really hard to get back on your feet. And you're doing really well. I've seen some great things. You're climbing and you're riding, but things are not normal. So tell me how things have changed from the last time we spoke to now in terms of your health and, and your progress. So it's like, okay, it's been about a little more than a year since we talked. Um, I guess last September, I had just transitioned to a new kind of leg brace that supports my left leg, which is the one that's paralyzed. And so, you know, it turned out to be a really uh, transitional uh, piece of technology for me. It allowed me, it's much lighter and it has some springiness in it. So it kind of replaces a little bit of what your calf is supposed to do. So it, it allowed me to do a lot more hiking, um, go a lot further, um, uh, so this summer, after a lot of training, I was able to climb one of our 14ers here in Colorado, and, as well as some local mountains here. And and then I also bought an e-bike. So I've been able to, to, you know, get back to not just cycling, but the kind of cycling that's actually fun. You know, I like I could get off the bike path, I could get into the hills, ride some of our amazing gravel here in Boulder. So that's been that's been really wonderful for me too. But there's been no like substantial change, you know, like the parts of my leg that are working have gotten stronger, but the parts of my leg that are paralyzed, which is everything below the knee are still completely paralyzed. And I continue to deal with a lot of other symptoms of a spinal cord injury. Uh, and you know, for me, that a, a big thing is that my bladder is paralyzed. So I have to use catheters to, to urinate. And that's, that's one of those things that they say like, well, you know, it could improve over time, but after two and a half years, your chances of there being improvement are, are slim. So that's a big issue. And then, you know, I also continue to live with, with chronic pain 
that have, you know, it's just the result of one half of my body being my one, one of my legs being paralyzed, the other one being normal. So I have this, this imbalance from left to right. And so, yeah, so I've, you know, functionally gained a lot of improvement, but the kind of the, uh, the foundational uh, medical challenge that I have remains, remains the same as it was a year ago. So I guess one of the questions I have is in terms of your mental and psychological well-being, have you come to a different place? I know you were really angry and, and rightly so. And so some of that probably got mitigated in court. Your, your victim statement was unbelievable. Um, and, and we will post it so people can read it. But how, how are you doing emotionally and, you know, sort of mentally? Well, it's, it's really challenging, Diane. I think, you know, a lot of people assumed that like, oh, well, you know, the guy who hurt you was sentenced to jail. Like you must be feeling great. Like this must be closure. Um, and that is really pretty far from the, the truth. Um, uh, I, I am glad that the driver was eventually found and that he's receiving a meaningful, if inadequate punishment. However, um, this sentence doesn't change anything for me. I'm just as paralyzed now as I was two weeks ago. I'm just in as much pain as I was two weeks ago. Not only did the driver, you know, commit a hit and run, but he also turned out to be a person without any resources. So, uh, you know, he didn't even have insurance on his vehicle. So I'm not someone who's going to like sue the insurance company, get an enormous settlement and like, you know, live a life of leisure and and therapy for the rest of my life. So, So, you know, again, like I am glad that he was, found and and arrested and and is receiving punishment but it's not it's not a cause for celebration and indeed like it it honestly just makes me feel sad because it's now i've experienced firsthand how um ineffective our criminal justice system is at dealing with this type of crime um the punishment again doesn't help me at all and doesn't really prevent the driver from um, committing another hit and run in the future because once he gets out of prison, he was sentenced to two years, assuming good behavior, he'll probably be out in six or seven months. And then he has mandatory parole. And when that's over, he will be able to drive again. And this is someone who committed, you know, near murder with a vehicle, right? And we also know um, that he, you know, he's a person of interest in other hit and run cases and not involving people, but, you know, like damaging vehicles and parking lots and driving away. So this is someone who's a, possibly has a drug problem or an alcohol problem uh, at, at, you know, the, the most charitable interpretation is that he's just a really fucking bad driver. Um, and the punishment he's receiving from the case that he's been convicted of does nothing to address that. And that's, that's very frustrating to me. And I just, I feel sad that like, we don't have a better, as a society, we don't have a better program for um, for someone like him who clearly is not fit to be on the road. But we have put the automobile up on such a pedestal that like taking away somebody's ability to drive is just not a thing that we um, that we even contemplate in this country. But don't you think even when, so here in Ohio, when somebody's license is suspended or taken away for life, they somehow seem to get the keys to a car anyway? And don't care. He didn't care the first time, right? So why would he care the tenth time or the hundredth time or whatever? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think right. I think he thought he'd gotten away with this. Um, Clearly, um, which you know is like it speaks to the kind of person that he is because the police had his van in custody. They still have it in custody. And you know when they when they questioned him in 2019, uh, you know they said like, "Hey, man, like looks like your van was used in hit and run. Were you driving?" He denied it. 
And they said, okay, well, who's driving? He said, well, I don't know. And so, you know, we knew, you know, those of us who were privy to the details of the case, I think we all just assumed correctly that he was the driver, but the police um, underwent a pretty thorough investigation to prove that before they were able to bring criminal charges. So uh, let me remind listeners, we're speaking with Bernie Bernstein. He's in Colorado um, and you are working again, right? Oh, I've been working this whole time. I, oh, okay. I you know, I, I was hospitalized for three months um, and I went back to work on a part-time basis pretty soon after getting discharged from the hospital. And then I'm very grateful that my employer let me kind of ramp up uh, back to full-time over, over six months. Um, but at this point, yes, I'm, I've, I've been back to full-time work for, you know, two years. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yep. Wow. So your victim statement had some interesting things to say, but one of the things I wanted to know is what's a stipulated two-year prison sentence? What did that mean? So this was, this was a plea bargain. Um, so, you know, he was, there were originally five charges, two of which were felonies. And those were all the charges that the police and the DA felt they had strong evidence to convict him on. Once he was arrested, they, you know, spent time studying the case and studying similar cases and, and they, and, you know, the DA in any criminal case will make a decision. Like, do we want to try this case or do we want to try to avoid trial? And it's like, it's essentially a business decision because trial takes a lot of time and money. And at the same time, you know, the trial deputy who was working on my case asked me what I wanted. And I went back and forth because on the one hand, I think going to a trial would have been extremely traumatic for me. Um, On the other hand, uh, it might've also been cathartic to have my day in court and it might've been a bigger media moment. But, you know, ultimately like the DA decided that a plea deal was the right path. So so what they do is they like say like, okay, like, listen, we're going to forget some of the charges, not all of them, but you're going to say, you're going to agree that you'll plead guilty to, you know, ABC instead of XYZ. And then, you, then here's the punishment. And so the stipulated sentence means that part of him pleading guilty to the charges that he pleaded guilty to meant that he uh, agreed to a two-year prison sentence plus parole plus restitution. And the, the prison sentence, like it is two years, but, um, in Colorado, with good behavior, um, inmates typically serve 30% before they're eligible for parole. So if you had been sitting up there on that judge's bench and he had come before you, what kind of punishment would you have liked to have seen or meted out that might send a message to people? Because that's the problem, you know, slap on the wrist, two years with half of it, three quarters of it suspended, doesn't incentivize anybody not to do stupid ass things like running cyclists down. Yeah. So, you know, the punishment that I would have wanted is like, okay, this guy never drives again, period. And he has to help me in the astronomical cost of my recovery. And the restitution, the financial piece of it was part of the sentence. However, this is a man with no financial resources. So he won't actually be able to to do that. He just, you know, he has no income. Uh, once he gets out of prison, he has no savings, like, you know, he has no insurance. So he's not, he's not going to be able to, to do that. Um, and then the driving piece of it, like it doesn't, it's almost impossible for uh, our existing legal system to take away someone's, someone's ability to drive forever. And then, as you said, it's very common for people who have suspended licenses or lost their licenses to get behind the wheel of a car anyway. 
So, you know, even if the court system had been able to say, okay, you're done, you're no more driver's license. This is a person who I'm sure would still be driving extra legally. And, you know, there's lots, as we, as we all know, there's lots and lots of um, illegal operators on the road. Um, and that's, uh, that's a real failing of our system. Um, but it's also a complicated question because it's hard to enforce. And I think we all know that, um, you know, when you have a lot of traffic stops, then you end up with a lot of people being wrongfully murdered by police. And it also tends to be a social justice issue with, uh, numbers of minorities, people getting pulled over by police wrongly. Um, so, you know, it, it, that's why it doesn't exist as, as punishment because, or that's why it exists as a problem rather because we don't have a good way to enforce it. Right, right. Will you move on in a way where you can experience, you know, joy and happiness and, and maybe you have. So what is hap- what is going on in your life that's really good? Well, there's lots of good stuff in my life and I certainly experience joy. Um, you know, this, this episode that I'm currently experiencing, um, you know, this criminal case finally coming to a conclusion after two and a half years, it's been really challenging for me. And while I don't feel any sense of conclusion or any sense of, uh, of closure, I certainly am glad that like the criminal proceeding is, is, is behind me for the most part. Um, it leaves me a little bit freer to, to focus on, um, my, re- my recovery um, and, you know, like, yes, there's lots of things that bring me joy in my current life. I've, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed hiking. That's something I did when I was younger, uh, like a teenager and really got away from it as an adult because I was very focused on bike racing and I, hiking and being a high level bike racer are not compatible generally. So it's been awesome to, you know, to rediscover that and have that as an activity in my life again. And in, I bought an e-bike, so I've been able to, you know, I've been able to, to ride again and I'm doing it in a much more uh, measured, balanced, healthy way. I'm not like, uh, you know, must get on the trainer, do two hours of intervals after work every single day. Right. This is more like, well, you know, my friend wants to ride and it's nice out. So we're going to go, you know, find some gravel roads and it's, it's fun. And I'm really grateful that I, you know, had the resources to buy myself any bike and that I live in a place where there's tons of gravel roads with, with very little traffic. That's, um, that's been a real blessing. And, you know, I have a new relationship and that's really joyful too. Good. What kind of e-bike did you get? Uh, specialized turbo Creo. So it's yeah. E, an E gravel bike. E gravel bike. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to get into all the <laughs> bicycle stuff right now. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad to see you. I'm glad to talk with you. I'm glad that at least the trial is over. And, and do you see yourself moving into any kind of an advocacy role going forward? I mean, you do advocate, of course, for safer driving. And I mean, we talked about that the last time you were on the show. You know, there have been some horrific, horrific crashes in Texas. Uh, for example, there have been three in, since your since your horrible incident. So where do you see yourself going in the future advocacy-wise? Um, I, I certainly want to continue to advocate for safer driving. And... And not just safer driving, but also more responsible driving, um, which I guess is maybe the same thing. But I, I think my my main mode will be to continue to kind of engage with people on a more intimate basis. I think, you know, I, I am pretty active on Instagram where I talk a lot about these kinds of issues and also my recovery. And I've started to uh, have the opportunity to talk to some uh, student groups, um, which, you know, generally are more interested in in like my recovery and how that's gone. 
but you know, especially talking to teenagers, it's always a good time to plug like their responsibility as they start to become drivers. And so that's that's the kind of work that I'd like to continue to do and and look forward to doing. I hope to continue to, you know, to to tell the story in written form. Um, I have uh, I'm currently in the middle of writing another essay for Outside Magazine, kind of a follow-up to the one that was published last year. And, you know, I'm looking forward to, to doing more of that um, that work. Good. Well, yeah. Bernie, it's been great to speak with you. We've been speaking with Bernie Bernstein. He is in Boulder, the Republic of Boulder, <laughs> Colorado, <laughs> and is recovering um, never fully. It's not ever going to be like it used to be, I know. But we have some good news with a prison sentence for the person who hit you. Well, again, Diane, I have to instruct you. It's not good news. <laughs> like that's a very important point. There's nothing good about it, right? Yeah, I guess you're right. Well, finding him though, wasn't it a fluke that found him? Uh, well, yeah, he was wanted and he eventually got arrested in a traffic stop because, you know, he was illegally driving and there was a warrant out. Uh, but you know, like, again, his prison sentence doesn't help me and it doesn't prevent him from doing anything again. So like, That's true. and I like prison is bad. I'm not someone who celebrates prison, right? It just happens to be the best solution that we have in this society. So again, like I am glad that the prison, sorry, that the criminal proceeding has come to a conclusion. Um, but I'm not, this is not like a happy thing. And I want to be very clear on that point. I am not happy about any of this. No, of course not not what it's done to you personally is horrific. I agree. And it's, it's just a failure of justice, right? Because we, you know, justice should, um, should strive to prevent recidivism. And this, this crime won't do that. And justice should also strive to help victims. And this punishment doesn't do that either. And I think, you know, what I've learned about criminal justice through this encounter is, um, is that uh, I think that justice that we see on TV is, is largely fake. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't watch don't watch legal shows on tv and expect yeah yeah that don't, to don't be believe reality yeah or maybe i should just watch more law and order maybe they deal with this in more complex ways well thank you again we will post the victim's statement because i thought it was powerful and uh something that people will want to read and i appreciate you taking time to talk with me i know you have lots to do so have a great day uh, you too diane thank you okay My thanks to Bernie for joining me on the show this week. A link to his victim statement is on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com, for the November 6th show. And our best wishes for continued recovery. My thanks to Omar DeFelice, and of course, my thanks to you for listening. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and rate it, too. You can leave a comment on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com, where each episode is accompanied by synopsis, links, and photos. I'll be back next week with a brand new show. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay well. And remember, there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye. Joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page, or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. 
The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.